Okay, everyone. My name is Tim, and I am the host of the Theologian's Table podcast. So today we have a very special show. I will be interviewing Kay Fellows, who's a pro-life activist, and she's here with me now. Uh, Kay, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Kay Fellows. Um, I've been a pro-life activist for about seven years now. This will be my seventh year this summer. I absolutely love what I do. Um, uh, I kind of dabble a little bit uh, in politics and other social issues, but like my main niche, something that I've always been focused on throughout all of my political and social activism has been pro-life activism. Awesome. So obviously, you know that uh, I'm a Christian, hence the theologian's table. And when I was kicking around this idea of interviewing you, I was like very excited to like see or or to to ask you about like how your uh religious beliefs play into your activism but before you answer that could you because i know what your answer was i already asked you but before we get into that do you mind explaining if you have any religious beliefs and if you do what they are for our listeners yeah, um, I don't know if you would classify like my belief system as a religious belief. Um, I identify as pagan. Um, I know that there are people, you know, there's so many different branches of paganism. I know that there are certain people that choose not to associate paganism with a set of religion, um, just because a lot of pagans have come from different different actual recognized religions that have, you know, some religious trauma. So they choose not to identify paganism with a religion. It's just simply a belief system. Um, But I'm, I'm what you might call an omnist. So I believe that there is a truth, a a relative truth to all different religions. um, And they just kind of coexist somewhat with each other. Um, I don't believe that any one set of religious beliefs is necessarily correct or incorrect. Um, And I just choose to believe that uh, regardless of what your belief system is, it's just coexisting with uh, humans as a species and not having, not imposing your religious beliefs on anybody else and not expecting uh, other people's religious beliefs to be imposed on you, just respecting uh, everybody's religious beliefs and kind of coexisting peacefully with each other in an ideal world, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when I first approached you, I was so excited to find out how your religious or or your belief system influence your pro-life views. And then you told me, well, go ahead and tell everybody what you told me. Um, So as far as uh, my influence with my activism and uh, my personal religious views, um, it doesn't really play a distinct part in my activism. It used to. Uh, whenever I first started in pro-life activism, um, I did identify as a Christian back then. Uh, and it was very like instrumental. Uh, my entire pro-life belief really centered around my religious beliefs. Uh, since then, I have kind of grown away from that to where I come to uh, pro-life activism in a, from a purely secular manner, uh, simply because of what I was talking about earlier is coexisting with everybody's religious beliefs and not believing that one specific belief system is the right one. Um, Pro-life activism to me is objective, whereas religious and personal beliefs are subjective. And I don't believe that they should kind of mix together. I think that they should be kept separate from each other so as not to muddy the waters of, well, that's your personal belief. Uh, Being opposed to abortion is not a personal belief. It's one that's rooted in in, in facts and science. Okay. And... (laughs) That sort of shocked me because, uh, to be honest with you, my pro-life belief is is very rooted in, in my faith. And I assumed it would be like that for everyone. In fact, until a few years ago, I had never heard of an atheist or somebody you would identify, I guess, as secular as having pro-life beliefs. You, your example is just, I think, showing how diverse the pro-life movement can be, you know, in, in thought and, and religious beliefs and, and philosophy and, and, and things like that. So I was very shocked when you told me that. And it, it took me a, a minute or two 
or a day or a week to try and wrap my head around that. But I think I, I'm not, I, I hopefully this is, doesn't sound insulting. I just think that it, it's really, uh, it, it helped me grow it as a person, I think. So I, yeah, ahead. it's, it's crazy because, um, I, I was very much in the same boat uh, for a very, very long time. And then um, I came across uh, one of my favorite pro-life activists. Her name is Albany Rose, and she's a, she's a pro-life atheist. And she really, really challenged my opinions on why I believed what I believed about abortion um, and caused me to really reevaluate that regardless of what you personally believe about you know a higher power or life after death or any of this stuff, it really does come back to, you know, either all human life is valuable or no human life is valuable. Whenever we start making these exceptions to the rule and saying, well, this human being isn't valuable enough to be worthy of the right to life, it opens up all kinds of doors for all the horrors that we've seen throughout human history. Um, and so regardless of what your personal beliefs are, this is something that we can, it's a common ground that we can absolutely easily meet on these are innocent human beings that deserve to be protected and have their right to life protected okay so let's let's dig in uh from that uh, going off of that i guess from in a so you argue that pro-life needs to be objective and the re religious views are subjective so from an objective standpoint where would you consider life starting for uh, a, a human being uh objectively fertilization uh science has proven this to us time and time again um there is an overwhelming uh scientific consensus if you read any level of embryology any embryology textbook it teaches this that at the moment of fertilization a brand new distinct human being with its own set of dna everything that makes us who we are written into their genetic codes begins the moment of fertilization. Okay, that's interesting uh, because I, I didn't know that. And it's good to hear like a scientific basis for uh, where life begins versus, uh, again, all my beliefs come from my religious background. But it, it's interesting to hear it from a scientific standpoint because usually I see a lot of pro-choicers trying to use science to justify their position so yeah and it's funny because uh since leaving christianity and actually becoming more involved in my pro-life activism it's really funny to kind of converse with a, a certain type of what i call troll pro-choicers that really just like come to start an argument because you know i will i will make the statement that life begins at fertilization it's a scientifically proven fact and they'll come back at me it's like well the bible says that life begins at birth it's like well i don't know what to tell you because i'm not a christian <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I'm, you're like, I'm not, you're not arguing that, and I'm not arguing that, so why bring it up in the first place? <laughs> it's like, it is, it's funny, because uh, the pro-choice side has very much not caught up with how incredibly diverse the pro-life movement is, uh, probably because it doesn't fit the narrative that, you know, the pro-life movement is just a bunch of old, white, religious men that want to control women. It's like that narrative isn't even remotely accurate. Um, we're just talking today about how the majority of the pro-life movement is actually women. And there is a growing sector of the pro-life movement that belongs to a number of other religions besides Christianity and Catholicism um, and uh, come from all different walks, walks of life, different backgrounds. Uh, it, it really is an incredibly diverse movement. All right. So you, you bring up the fact that the pro-life is movement is mainly women and uh, you you describe yourself as a feminist and following you on Twitter, I very much see that. But the pro-choice movement says that if you're a feminist, then you should be pro-choice. Could you give me an argument for if you're a feminist, you should be uh, pro-life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because um, I was one of kind of the leading pro-life voices that kind of pushed this idea of pro-life feminism into the mainstream. Uh, a few years ago, I was very much what you would call an anti-feminist. I actually used to unironically use the phrase feminism is cancer. Um, but then I 
discovered a a feminist pro-life group out of Dallas, Texas. They're called New Way Feminists. And they started this whole uh, kind of reclaiming the title and the the message of feminism to include pro-life women because the original feminists were pro-life and they believed in the dignity of the life in the womb as well as the dignity of the women that carried that life. And whenever you look back at how abortion came to be and the reason for its existence, it's actually incredibly anti-woman because women had the problem of wanting to be able to be in the workforce and be seen as equal to men in society and not just be shoved into the box of being stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home wives. And instead of adapting and changing society so that women could be seen equally um, while also taking into consideration our biological ability to get pregnant even whenever we don't intend to, they just gave us birth control pills and abortion and pretended like they had fixed our problems. It's like uh, putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound and saying that you fixed the problem. Um, Abortion from its beginnings, from its roots, says that women's biology is the problem. Uh, The thing that makes us biologically female is what is wrong with us. And so we need this man-made invention so that we can be seen as equal to men in society. It doesn't make any ounce of sense to say that abortion is pro-woman, especially whenever you consider that whenever it comes to sex-selective abortions, baby girls are six times more likely to be killed in utero. Wow. That is, I did not know about that uh, statistic. That's troubling, especially since uh, girls in other cultures, having them, it's looked down upon. It's it's insane to me, the crap that women have to deal with from conception till death, I guess. But I'll ask a little bit more about that in a little bit. Uh, But I've got some scenarios for you that I'd like your input on. So I've got this scenario here. It says uh, abortion is better than a child living in extreme poverty because poverty would just be a painful existence and therefore abortion is the more compassionate choice. You know, I really love whenever people bring up poverty because um, I, I was born into poverty. Um, my my mom already had one child. My dad was about to join the military because we had absolutely no money. And so he went off to boot camp right after I was born. And my mom was left just scrambling. Uh, there were times whenever my brother and I would be splitting a 99 cent box of macaroni and cheese so that we could feed ourselves. Um, you know, poverty is a, is a horrible hardship. Um, but having the right to life doesn't mean that you have the the right or even the high statistical chance of not having any amount of suffering and it is not up for up to anybody else to dictate whose life is and is not worth living just because a child might suffer through poverty or abuse or neglect doesn't mean that another person gets to decide that their life wasn't worth living you know i grew up i i, I suffered through a few years of of being impoverished and seeing how much my mom had to struggle to provide for us. And then, you know, she got remarried and had, you know, a lot of more children with my stepdad and our, our lives got better financially. Um, and now I'm married and I have my, my two kids and my own life. And although I did have to endure that suffering in the beginning of it, I now have a life that I absolutely love and would not give up for the world. So it, it seems so incredibly ridiculous to paint the narrative that you are mercifully taking away somebody else's right to choose whether their own life was worth living. All right. I think that I'm just going to say that I agree with you, obviously. <laughs> I'm pro-life. And, and yeah, I don't, I just don't think it's a good argument. I mean, I wasn't born into poverty or, or anything like that, but you never know what a person is capable of. And just to take away the possibility of that future, even if they don't contribute like uh, something new to medical science or they're not the next Steve Jobs or whatever, that shouldn't mean that they don't have any worth or anything like that. Well, I think we have a, a messed up sense of, of worth uh, in this yeah, society. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always kind of come back with, well, why don't we just eliminate the poverty? 
why don't we let this child be born and try to eliminate their poverty, help the mother that is already struggling get out of her, out of the situation that she's struggling in. You know, pro-choicers really like to clap back at us, like, well, what are you doing for already born children? Well, what are you doing for already born children? Like, are you out here, you know, helping reform the foster care system, helping make the adoption system more efficient, helping, you know, at food, like donating to food banks, helping, you know, in soup kitchens, uh, donating to, you know, relief funds to help with, you know, homelessness and, and single motherhood and all of these situations. Like there are things that we can do to help eliminate the situation in which the suffering is happening. We don't have to eliminate an entire person. <laughs> Yes, uh, I agree. I'll say amen, sister. <laughs> um, so here's another scenario. Having an abortion has allowed women to have more success in their chosen career. And so I think Stevie Nicks said something like that. And then Michelle Williams, who who's an actress. And what are your uh, thoughts on that? You know, every time I hear these stories, it it always like brings the the same thought to mind. It's like, wow, here we are in 2021 and we have absolutely failed women as a society to where they they felt they could not be successful and achieve their dreams without killing their children. This is just a clear-cut sign that society has ultimately failed women while feeding them the lie that in 2021 they are the most liberated that they've ever been. Yeah, when we have people like Michael Bloomberg out there who's telling his employees to kill their unborn children. So, so the next scenario is one that comes from a real life personal ex example. I guess there was a woman that I worked with. So I'm going to tell a story here, if you don't mind. A woman I worked with a, a while ago, uh, and at the end of her shift, she would put on makeup. She'd spend the last five minutes putting on makeup. And then, and I'm like, why, why do you do that every time your shift is over? And she says, well, I don't want to disappoint my dad. So I, that's why I put on this makeup. I want to look good and presentable. So it, it doesn't embarrass my dad. And then come to find out she confesses that she got an abortion for the same reason, because, you know, she didn't want to embarrass her, her dad didn't want to, bring shame upon their family. And how much do you think shame has contributed to person feeling the need to have an abortion? Unfortunately, um, I think that it is a very, very heavy contributor. I think that it actually makes up a very large portion of the abortion statistic. Whenever you consider that the majority of the pro-life movement is still rooted in Christianity, yet Christian women make up the majority of the abortion statistic. You can't help but wonder why that is. Um, having grown up in a very fundamental Baptist environment, um, I can attest to the fact that the shame that is inflicted on young girls and young women throughout their teenage years and into adulthood in some sectors of religion in in our society plays a huge role in the the drive that women have that it's literally just taking their hand and leading them straight into the abortion clinic because of fear of rejection fear of disappointing a, a parent or a guardian or a sibling um fear of being judged by by your peers um, it, it plays a, a very, very large role. And I'm thankful to see that there has been a lot of people in the religious part of the pro-life movement that have called out this behavior and talking about, you know, this should be the this should be the sector of our society where these women feel the most accepted, the most loved. We should be the place that women are turning to whenever they have an unplanned pregnancy, knowing that they can come to us for for assistance, for guidance, for help, not fearing that we're going to judge them or look down on them or have parents kicking their children out of their houses and having women living on the street um, because they got they got pregnant and outside of 
the bonds of marriage and outside of what is seen as the ideal situation for them. So women having abortions is just not women doing it because it's uh, having a child is inconvenient for them. Unfortunately, you know, that does make up a small percentage of the abortion statistic. But whenever we talk about abortions out of convenience, uh, that's kind of it kind of covers a lot of issues. Um, it, whenever we talk about inconvenience, we can talk about, you know, the disappointment of a parent. We can talk about uh, not being able to finish school, whether it be high school or college, you know, having to drop out, uh, not being able to, you know, pursue a, a dream career or being worried that they're going to be fired from their current job. Um, when we talk about inconvenience, uh, it really does uh, encompass a lot of kind of socioeconomic issues that women face whenever it comes to unplanned pregnancy. Gotcha. And that's a good, uh, that's a good reminder. So though I only had three scenarios for you there. Are there any others off the top of your head that you think are important to talk about as for reasons why women might get abortion, uh, abortions or, and whatnot? Uh, probably the biggest one that comes up whenever talking about abortion, it does make up the the smallest percentage of the abortion statistic, but it is still, you know, something that needs to be talked about. And it's often the argument used against uh, the pro-life causes, uh, abortions that take place due to rape or incest. Yeah. And these are incredibly difficult situations. And thankfully, they do make up the smallest part of the abortion statistic, but they do still happen. Pregnancy, unplanned pregnancies do come about um, from incredible trauma and, and awful things that happen. And my response is always that we as a society need to do so much better in how we handle uh, the increasing and already horrible rape statistic that we have in the United States. Um, and we need to do better as a society in how we respond to rape allegations and women that have been raped. Uh, and that is just double twice as true whenever uh, a pregnancy, unfortunately, is a result of something that is so horrible. But uh, I always come back with, we, we don't punish completely innocent human beings for the acts of someone else. Um, that child did not ask to be brought into existence in such a horrible and tragic manner. They are, it, it happened of no fault of their own. And it makes absolutely no sense that they should pay the ultimate price with their lives for something that they took no part in. Right. So that I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I think that's something that isn't discussed enough and it isn't in your right. You said earlier, you know, it's like a bandaid covering up, a bullet hole, you know, we kind of use those arguments as a way to treat the symptom instead of treating the, the, the disease, I guess, as it were. So you're very right. So let's, let's talk about abortion laws. So I see a lot in the news lately about uh, bans, uh, abortion bans. And in, in, in here in Georgia, we had the, the heartbeat bill, which I think uh, prevents abortions uh, after six weeks. So do you think that uh, they really work and, and they're effective? Are, are they good or bad? Um, I've said before, I, I do support abortion bans. Um, I support the legal fight to you know overturn Roe v. Wade and make abortion an illegal act. Um, but I don't think that's where our main fight is because I don't believe that abortion bans on their own are going to be effective. Uh, we can ban abortion tomorrow and yeah, the abortion statistics are going to go down, but we're not going to eliminate abortion in our culture because abortion has been literally sewn into the fabric of American culture since Roe versus Wade was passed back in 1973. So uh, when we're talking about abortion activism, uh, the legality, abortion bans, overturning Roe v. Wade is such a small, like such a fractional part of what we need to do to create a culture of life to where abortion isn't just illegal, but it is an unthinkable thing. Women aren't even, it's not even something that really comes into women's heads whenever an unplanned pregnancy happens because 
there are going to be women that are in incredibly desperate situations and they, that fight or flight mode is triggered and they do try to get an illegal abortion or they try to order illegal birth control pills through the mail. And you are going to see women that get into these really, really heavy and horrible situations that end up unfortunately dying and killing themselves because they ordered faulty medication on the internet or they tried an at-home abortion or they went to a doctor that wasn't trained well enough to give them an abortion and it ends up in them dying. So whenever we talk about making abortion illegal and having all of these different abortion bans, there are a lot of things that we need to do socially um, to make sure that these women don't feel the need to have abortions in the first place. Um, I say all the time that our fight for changing the culture when it comes to abortion is social. And while I applaud the people that do all the work on the legal on the legal side of things, the majority of pro-life activism should be in your in your communities, changing minds and changing hearts. And even on the legal side of, you know, making laws that are protecting women and keeping women safe and providing for born children that are already here, you know, foster care reform, adoption reform. These are all kind of outside sectors of pro-life activism that are absolutely vital to the pro-life fight. Right. So everything's connected. Uh, okay. So, all right. I want to get back to that. Uh, especially with the uh, reform things. But let me ask this. Since you've been in this for so long, what are some bad pro-life laws that you've seen? Um, there is a somewhat of a divide amongst pro-lifers on whether or not women should be legally charged um, if abortion were to be made illegal and women still get abortions. Uh, the vast majority of the pro-life movement is kind of in the same boat as me, is where we don't see that being fruitful. Um, but there are still people that, you know, are part of our movement that think that these these bans are being too merciful to women that get abortions. Um, to me, uh, I see the push to make it criminal for for women to get abortions i see that as being kind of detrimental to what we're trying to do um i think that it pushes a lot of people away from kind of trying to meet us on common ground and kind of see what we're about uh it alienates uh post-abortive women that are in our movement um and overall i just see it as being a very very slippery slope and a, a bad idea whenever it comes to legally prosecuting women uh, for abortions. I mean, uh, abortion is still completely legal and protected with Roe v. Wade right now. Um, but we do see in a few red states uh, over the last 15 years, women having been jailed um, because of a miscarriage that was mistaken for a, an abortion or a, an illegal abortion. Uh, this is something that could go south very, very quickly. And uh, the people that support it, I don't think that they're really, really looking at the long-term picture of what could happen um, with them supporting that. Yeah, it just seems like they want like a victory for the pro-life movement, and they're not looking at the nuances. Because as we've discussed a little bit already, a lot of the reasons for an abortion are deeply psychological and a law like that where they throw a woman in, in jail or they they ask for a woman to prove that they had a miscarriage and not an abortion, which is ridiculous. But the, they, they don't see the nuance. And that's that's big for me. You need to see the, the nuance and all of this in order to, you know, create social change to uh, address everything that needs to be addressed. So would you yeah, say absolutely. that's correct? Absolutely. You know, as a woman that has suffered multiple miscarriages, uh, the idea that I would have to prove that I had miscarried and not aborted, like that is absolutely horrifying to me. And having met so many post-abortive women that are now pro-life activists, um, knowing that there are some people out there that think that they should be behind bars because they were in horrible circumstances. And I think about all of the all of the women that were coerced or even forced by a family member to get abortions. Like should they face face legal repercussions too because they they did it, you know, 
at risk of having uh, a spouse or a partner abuse them or leave them or having their parents kick them out of their home and be living on the streets? Should they be sent to prison because they were put in an incredibly desperate and horrifying situation? Yeah, I didn't think of that. Uh, that's why you're on the show. So <laughs> because some women are forced to get abortions and, you know, we don't always talk about that. Uh, I'm very glad that you brought that up. You mentioned that there's uh, post-abortive women in that are now in the pro-life group or, or in the pro-life movement. And that's something that's always intrigued me is how should someone who's pro-life interact with somebody who who's had an abortion it doesn't feel great that they had it you know what i'm saying yeah it's you know it's something that i kind of tiptoed around for a really really long time um but then i i listened to these post-abortive women talk about abortion and advocate against abortion and they are they these are women that have seen it firsthand they know exactly what happens in these, in these abortion clinics during these abortion procedures. And they don't shy away from the facts simply because they were once in that position. They are extremely bold. Some of the fiercest pro-life activists I know are women that have gone through this and experienced this and know the truth about what abortion is and what it does, not just to an unborn human, but to women. The, the psychological effects that it has on women, whether or not they were huge advocates for abortion and thought that they were completely in the right whenever they did it. Or people like my friend Albany, who I mentioned earlier, uh, she is a post-abortive woman, um, pressured by her father to go get an abortion, told the clinic uh, counselor that she didn't want to have the abortion, wrote on her paperwork that she didn't want to have the abortion, and they gave her an abortion anyway. You know, these are some, these are women that have seen the absolute worst side of the abortion industry, and they are out here sharing their truth, knowing how how hard it is and how we view abortion still out here stating the facts uh being completely truthful upfront and honest because they know what needs to happen and that we need to expose abortion for what it is that's good because i th i think i'm trying to process what i'm trying to what i want to say because i think that most people view pro-lifers as people who want to vilify post-abortive women. And I don't think that's true, but I don't have very, I'm, you know, I'm not an activist and, and you are, so you could shine more light on it. You don't want to vilify post-abortive women, do you? Absolutely not. And, you know, I've, I've had so many interactions with post-abortive women who are still pro-choice, you know, and I explain to them because they do assume that, like, I, I'm out here and I hate them and I think that they're horrible, disgusting human beings. Majority of pro-life activists do not think that at all. Um, I see, you know, I have a, a pro-choice activist telling me, you know, that she had an abortion and all I can think is how how horrible I feel for her that she was put in a situation where she felt like she needed to do that. And I always ex I always come to the table with as much empathy as I can muster. Uh, sometimes it's accepted with grace, and sometimes it's thrown back in your face. There's a lot of there's a lot of heated emotions whenever it comes to this topic. Uh, but I do think that it is very important, regardless of whether someone is pro life or pro choice. Whenever somebody opens up about you know, hey, I, I had an abortion or I've had multiple abortions or I'm going to have an abortion, um, that we approach it with the utmost empathy because these are women that are being indoctrinated by society from the youngest of ages that this is something that you need to do in order to finish school, have your dream career, have your dream life, do this, do that, avoid, you know, dying in childbirth. You know, these are women that are genuinely scared and in incredibly intense and difficult situations. So as a pro-life activist, I always urge people whenever talking to post-abortive women or women that are considering abortion, just come to the table, come to the conversation with nothing but empathy. Thank you for sharing that. And that's what I'd hope would happen in the first place. Before we move on and sticking around with the, the issue of, of laws, you mentioned 
reform, like in adoption and in foster care. What 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 types of reform in those two do you think uh, would help the pro life movement? And what 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 did you mean when when you talked about that? Well, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a radicalist. Whenever it comes to this, I get a little bit of pushback from people of all walks of life because um, I'm also a libertarian. I don't trust the government to do anything correctly. Um, I think that seeing how incredibly ripe with abuse that the foster care and the CPS system are like, it is absolutely horrifyingly awful how much uh, abuse there is in the, our foster care system. It's it, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I shared a statistic a couple months ago talking about how um, of the 80,000 children roughly that go missing annually and are never found, uh, half of those children are in the care of the state whenever they go missing. That is absolutely horrifying. Mm. Um, and it is absolutely a sign that we need incredible reform with this system. Um, I honestly suggest that the CPS and foster care system uh, be privatized and go as a nonprofit and work similarly to how uh, anti-sex trafficking aid works, where you have these nonprofit organizations that head up child abuse investigations and so on and so forth, um, working with the state to get these children out of these bad situations and making sure that they get into homes that are also not going to be abusive. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing children because of legal red tape or whatever you want to call the state just being ineffective, children being left in abusive situations and it being too late and that child dying in the care of the abusive parent. We see children being taken out of situations and then being put into foster homes where they're also being physically and sexually abused. Um, there needs to be some sort of change here. And I think that nonprofits do a great job in help in aiding in breaking up sex trafficking rings where they're doing the legwork. And because it's a nonprofit, you have people that are doing this not for money, not because it's their job, but they're doing it because they genuinely care. And then they're working alongside law enforcement to make sure that, you know, no laws are being broken in the process. Uh, but ensuring that there are people on the ground and in these situations that genuinely care about these children and are getting them the help that they need and getting them out of these in terrible, horrible, abusive environments and being placed in safe homes. So this is like a holistic view of pro-life because it's not just about the unborn, but you're going all the way up through uh, a person's life. You know, their whole life is, is valuable. And the more things that you take care of, the easier it is to make uh, a culture value life from in in utero so i think that i think uh the the uh, privatization is something that i never considered before so that's really interesting and uh i'm sure there's been pushback on you know whether or not that can because when when i think of privatization i think of uh, uh prisons how prisons are privatized and how inmates uh you know whether they're there for a reason or not can be more prone to get abused by the system. So what you're saying is nothing like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, whenever it comes to situations like like prison or, you know, foster care or adoption, I think that there needs to be a balance between government and private citizens. And there needs to be a level of accountability there. So you're meeting if, you, if the government is meeting nonprofits halfway, you have people that it's their job to care for these kids because they're, they're government officials and they work for the government agency that's required to make sure that kids aren't being abused. And um, then you have nonprofits that are just full of people that genuinely care and are very, very passionate about getting kids out of abusive situations and making sure that they're not put back into abusive situations. Um, and they're holding each other accountable so that we don't have... Uh, under the table dealings, like we've seen, uh, there was a huge scandal uh, here, actually, in my home city of Philadelphia a number of years ago, 
um, of CPS workers taking children um, out of homes that were not abusive, that they did not need to be removed from that home. Um, and they were getting under the table bribes to do so. It was it was basically a, a whole trafficking scheme. They were trafficking children into in and out of the, in and out of the foster care system. Um, there needs to be a level of accountability there so that you don't have government officials doing horrible, awful things like that, um, but also uh, law enforcement keeping nonprofits accountable so that nonprofits aren't being infiltrated by by child abusers because you there is a chance of that happening as well. Uh, I think that whenever it comes to uh, extreme situations like this where children are involved in there needs to be, there obviously needs to be changed. The government having complete control of this has been an absolute disaster. Um, but we don't want to completely turn it over to private citizens and have no accountability for where these children are being taken from and where they're going. Um, there needs to be balance there between private citizens and the government. Right. So that's pretty, so that, okay, that's, that's good. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's very well thought out, in my opinion. All right. Uh, let's move on to some of the more controversial things about abortion. I mean, not, it's pretty controversial, but I'm talking about Planned Parenthood. Was it last week or the week before AOC's out there talking about Planned Parenthood? And there was this uh, argument over whether or not Planned Parenthood provides prenatal care. And, you know, Planned Parenthood is something that's very protected by, I guess, the left. And it's almost like this sacred institution for the left. So what's up with Planned Parenthood? Uh, Planned Parenthood is an absolutely horrifyingly awful organization. I think that's absolutely ridiculous that we are still funding this. Um, they have gotten away with murder, literally. Um, they are not held to the safety standards that a healthcare clinic should be held to. Women have died from botched abortions in their clinics. They have not followed safety protocols in alerting an ambulance or emergency care whenever they should have. And then women end up uh, either dying or having long-term side effects from not getting the emergency care that they need fast enough. Uh, it's absolutely horrifying what Planned Parenthood gets away with and the legal system just turns a blind eye to it because it's Planned Parenthood. And going up against Planned Parenthood means that you are some far right-wing extremist that just wants poor people to die without healthcare access, which is not even remotely true. And the fact of the matter is, is that the more that Planned Parenthood gets exposed, the more pro-choice people that I meet that are actually anti-Planned Parenthood. The first pro-choicer that I met that was anti-Planned Parenthood was all the way back in like 2014, before any of the, uh, the exposed videos about, you know, the under the table, selling mm -hmm. of fetal body parts, any of that. There's like, this is a horrible organization that preys on women, on minority women in poor neighborhoods. They they prey on them. They give them crappy birth control, crappy condoms. Uh, they're basically making long-term uh, clients because you send, the, they go into the schools with this bad birth control, this horrible sex education. Uh, and then it almost guarantees that, kids are going to get pregnant and then they're going to end up on their table to get an abortion. Um, they have been, they have been busted using their own records for aiding in sex trafficking or sending rape and molestation victims back with the people that abuse them without reporting it to the police. This organization, whether or not you support abortion or not, it should be clear cut that you should not be supporting Planned Parenthood. Not only should they not be receiving taxpayer funds, but they should be getting shut down left and right. And if they were hold to, held to the standards that they should be held to, the reality is, is that the majority of clinics would shut down. I didn't know anything about the safety sta standards and, and them not meeting it. So that's, that's new and tr very troubling. And you mentioned that they have crappy sex education. What, what is that like? What's that like? Or what do you think a better alternative might be? Well, whenever we talk about more comprehensive sex education, you know, obviously the majority of public schools provide base level sex education. And, you know, studies have proven that what 
what teenagers are getting in our public schools is not comprehensive enough. They're not getting enough information. They're still going out and becoming sexually active without having all the information they need to make sure that they're being safe, not just from unplanned pregnancy, but like STDs and things like that. And Planned Parenthood, you know, they they like to pride themselves on having this great comprehensive sex education. But in reality, the government is giving them extra taxpayer dollars to head up public sex education in public schools. And the sex education through Planned Parenthood has not gotten any less baseline. It's not becoming more comprehensive. And kids are still going out and becoming more sexually active without getting all of the information that they need in order to be safe. All right. So we got Planned Parenthood there. And then we've got something that tries to counter that uh, with crisis pregnancy centers. And I've worked with crisis pregnancy centers, but I've also seen them get a lot of flack from uh, the pro-choice movement, being that a lot of the crisis pregnancy centers have to are faith-based. I obviously think that they provide a better alternative to abortion, uh, but what's your stance on on those kind of centers? I am a huge supporter of crisis pregnancy centers because I actually um, I am a client for a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, whenever I got pregnant with my firstborn with my son, um, I didn't have any health insurance at the time. Uh, it was kind of unexpected, and um, I I wasn't sure how to go about getting on uh, my state's medical insurance. Um, so I went to my local crisis pregnancy center and they were absolutely fantastic. Uh, I walked right in. I didn't even have to make an appointment. Um, they handed me some paperwork to fill out, which was super, super comprehensive. They went over everything, like what my basic needs were, um, what I was coming in for today, whether or not I was expecting to receive, uh, abortion services. And, um, underneath there, they went over the fact that they do not provide abortion services, um, and they cannot refer me to someone who has, who offers abortion services. Uh, they were very, very clear with that from the beginning. And they even went over, you know, whether or not I feel safe where I'm living, if I have a support system at home, making sure that I was in a safe environment. Um, I went back and I met with a nurse. She was a certified nurse uh, who did a pregnancy test with me and went over uh, how to go about applying for Medicaid paperwork, gave me all of the information I need, spent an hour with me writing everything down and going over each step with me so that I was sure whenever I got home, I could do this all on my own and get the medical insurance that I needed. Um, and then even wrote a letter of ref like recommendation for me to send in to the Medicaid office with my application to ensure that I got on Medicaid. Um, and then she invited me to come back with my husband a few weeks later for a completely free ultrasound because I wasn't going to have medical insurance for a number of weeks while my paperwork was being processed. Uh, they were absolutely incredible uh, from beginning to end. Um, I went and saw them uh, my seventh week of pregnancy and then I was supposed to come back um, at my 10th week for my ultrasound. Um, during my eighth week, I experienced some bleeding and I thought that I might be miscarrying. And because I didn't have medical insurance, I couldn't just go to the ER because I knew that I was going to have to pay for it. I called them. She talked with me on the phone. Uh, even though I wasn't religious back then, she offered to pray for me. Uh, she explained that if I was miscarrying, unfortunately, there was nothing any medical professional could do, um, but that they would, sh I would be in her thoughts and prayers. And that if I had any questions or concerns that I shouldn't hesitate to call back the clinic. Uh, she said she would even stay late that evening to make sure that she could get my call if I called her. And then two days later, she actually called me to make sure that I was doing okay. Uh, they were absolutely phenomenal from the beginning to end. I still donate um, baby items and like diapers and formula to that center because they were absolutely a vital support system that I needed during my first pregnancy. Yeah. And that's another thing. They give you stuff to help prepare you to have the baby and for when the baby's there. And it's like one of those things where 
the the nastier side of the pro-choice movement says, well, you know, what are you doing to help? We got these mother flipping crisis pregnancy centers that that's what we're doing is that's how we're helping. Obviously, I've got a uh, I have strong feelings. So but uh, anyways, I'm glad that you brought that up because that they've played a role in life, uh, as well. And I've got this question for you now. Uh, how do you think the pro-life movement hurts itself the most? Um, I think that the pro-life movement, I'm probably going to get a little bit of pushback for this because I, I've said it in previous interviews and a lot of people got really mad at me. Um, I think the pro-life movement really, really hurts itself by insisting on conflating pro-life activism with religion. Um, there are a lot of people on the pro-choice side that have experienced a lot of religious trauma. Uh, there are a, a lot of people on the left in general that have come from very fundamental evangelical homes uh, that have a very, very bad taste in their mouth whenever it comes to religion. And so whenever pro-life activists insist on just kind of intertwining their religious beliefs with pro-life activism and therefore conflating religious beliefs and pro-life activism as a whole together, um, it really does alienate a lot of people. I've had so many conversations where I'm trying to have a, a, a productive conversation with an abortion supporter on why I believe that abortion is wrong. And for the first 30 minutes of the conversation, I have to keep reminding them, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Like you're arguing things with me that I don't, I don't believe. So it, we're, we're just kind of burning rubber here. We're not going anywhere because I'm, I'm not a religious person. So I can't, I can't have a conversation with you about religion because I'm not myself religious. Um, whatever that time could have been spent going over the scientific facts of abortion and what overwhelmingly pro-life people support helping women in crisis pregnancies, providing for babies after they're born. You know, all of these, all this stigma that the abortion industry puts on pro-lifers to keep people pro-choice and supporting abortion, all these horrible fears that like, they're just crazy religious people that want to in, like just inflict their religious beliefs on you and control your body. Like that is not even remotely true for the vast majority of the pro-lifers, even religious ones. But because there is such a negative stigma around religion in general for people that are no longer religious, trying to tie the two in together can really, really be harmful overall to the pro-life movement's overall effort, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. It totally does. Um, and I'm not going to push back on that because uh, otherwise I wouldn't have had you on the show. Uh, uh, but we don't, you and I, there are some things that we disagree on that. I, I mean, I haven't shared with you, but I think for me, one of the things that people need to know, especially about this newer generation of the pro-life movement is that Pro-life isn't just pro-birth. And I want to let you go on uh, about what you think pro-life, what it means to be pro-life and where you stand on, on all of those issues. For me, to be pro-life is to just be pro-valuing human life, seeing human life as uh, an inalienable right. Uh, that everybody has from the moment of fertilization until natural death. Um, I'm what they call a consistent life ethic activist. Um, so I don't support any any taking of human life. I, I'm anti-war. I'm anti-nuclear weapons. I'm anti-assisted suicide, euthanasia. I'm anti-death penalty. Um, to me, the human life, either all human life is valuable and people have the inalienable right to it, or it's not. There either has to be an absolute that we as a society have decided it on um, in order to be, you know, a civilized people. 
uh, that, you know, overwhelmingly even pro-choice people will acknowledge, like, this is something that we have agreed upon. You don't see people out killing each other in the streets because we, as a civilized society, have decided that humans have the inalienable right to their own lives and it's not up to you to take it. Um, so for me, just being pro-life is valuing your fellow human being, uh, regardless of circumstance, uh, location, uh, development, anything that we just so arbitrarily tie value to as born people, uh, it doesn't matter. None of it matters because all human beings are valuable. Yes. And I think that I, from where I am, I'm seeing more of uh, the pro-life movement trending towards that direction. I follow very much in, in suit with that. Um, I'm very I'm an, I, I'm anti-death penalty. I'm definitely anti-war. And I also tie it into some of the uh, uh, civil rights, the continuing civil rights issues that we have today, too. So I think I think that there definitely needs to be a more holistic view of what it means to pro be pro-life. But pro-birth is definitely an, an important part of that, too. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a small uh, fraction of like, right. yes, OK, I'm pro-life. I, I do support people being born. That, that's that's a good thing. Whenever you think that human beings are all valuable and all human life has valuable, you should support people being born. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to end on probably something that people might not like but uh Let's get him fired up Tim. <laughs> my my body my choice. What what do you think of that? But let, let me go first. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's not your body that is going away. It's somebody else's body. Maybe exactly. you can elaborate more on that. Exactly. Like you know, whenever it comes to like, it's my body, so it's my choice whether or not I have an abortion. Okay, well, somebody dies in abortion 99.999% of the time. And 98% of the time, that is not the woman. And so whenever you're talking about my body, my choice, it makes absolutely no sense. Unless women are the primary target in abortion procedures, then it is not your body to make the choice for. All right. I think I might have made anybody who's on the left and is my friend and who's listening mad at me, but I mean, you got to throw it out there. So I think this is going to wrap it up. Kay, I just want to thank you so much for uh, coming on, uh, on the show on the theologians table. And I'm hoping that people who are out there, and who are pro-life see that there's advocates everywhere, you know, not just uh, faith-based advocates, but you know, secular and and atheists and, and whatever. So, Kay, why don't you promote yourself uh, before we go? Like, where can people find you online and, and things like that? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm most active. I'm probably too active on my Twitter account. It's just my my name right here at the bottom of the screen at uh, K Fellows. Uh, I tweet about anything and everything. Every I have an opinion on almost everything, and I feel the need to put it out into the world. Um, I do have a YouTube channel that is incredibly inactive and probably won't be active for a while because we're in the process of moving right now. And my studio is currently being used as a storage space, um, but it is there and it has content on it. It's just a little bit older. Um, I do occasionally uh, stream, uh, not personally, but like I go onto other people's streams on Twitch. Uh, I haven't been super active there lately either, unfortunately, because life is very, very chaotic. Um, but definitely follow me on Twitter because I announce when I'm going to be where if I upload new content to my YouTube channel and everything. Okay. Awesome. And I'd also like to thank one more person, uh, Tom of the Tom Foolery show, because if not for him, we would have not met, uh, I would have not met Kay and occasionally we're both on there. Kay more than me, uh, but, uh, you know, Kate, that's because she knows what she's talking about. So, <laughs> um, 
in relation to politics and, and other things. So, but shout uh, out to Kay, Tom. yeah, shout out to Tom. <laughs> but Kay, uh, this is your interview, so I just want to say thank you very much uh, for being on here, and I uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This was great. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>